Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. We're once again staying in the SEC. This is Roger Hoover alongside Kyle Crooks, and joining us from Knoxville, Tennessee, is the play-by-play voice for the Tennessee Volunteers on the Vol Network, Bob Kessling. Bob, how's everything going today? Roger, it's going great. Going great. Just uh, Groundhog's Day, you know, like the rest of us are going through right now. But, uh, yeah, everything's good. Well, we're certainly glad to have you join us and to talk about your play-by-play journey and um, movement in this business. Uh, first of all, where did you grow up and who were some of your early play-by-play influences? Well, I was, I was born in Dallas, Texas, and I stayed there till uh, I was in fourth grade. Uh, I got uh, kind of hooked on sports there. My, uh, my dad was a drum major at Ohio State, and uh, he was then, when he graduated, became an insurance salesman. And they, he got assigned to Dallas, and he was a regional manager down there. And uh, in 1959, Lamar Hunt decides to form the Dallas Texans in the AFL. And so my dad, being a musician and a former drum major, loved marching bands and that kind of stuff. And so he befriended Lamar Hunt and uh, went. He was, a, he was a member of the Lions Club. So he went to all the Lions Clubs in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and found all the musicians and he formed a marching band for the dallas texan home games at the cotton bowl and so as a little guy and i guess i was in first or second grade i'd go to the cotton bowl every sunday to watch the dallas texans take on the new york titans and the los angeles chargers and the buffalo bills and all that stuff and i got i just got hooked on football and uh, so then i moved to my parents got divorced and moved to ohio uh, when I was in fourth grade and uh, kind of grew up there and uh, just, you know, I played sports, but I was one of those guys that had the transistor radio under my pillow at night and I'd listen to the Reds and I'd flip it over to listen to Harry Carey and Jack Buck do the Cardinals and then Bob Prince do the Pirates. And during basketball season, I'd listen to all the games I could get because we could get Indiana and Purdue and Cincinnati and Dayton and Ohio State. And I'd, every night, I'd just, under my pillow, I'd be listening to those games. And that's where, I, I guess, kind of the fascination of uh, being a broadcaster, because, I mean, suddenly you're, you're, you're in your bedroom there uh, upstairs in your house, and, but you turn that radio on and you're in Cincinnati Gardens or you're at uh, um, Alumni Hall or you're all these different places, Memorial Coliseum down in Lexington. It, it was some magic to that a little bit. And uh, so I really liked it. So when so I came to Tennessee to uh, walked on the football team, knew I wanted to do something in sports. I wasn't exactly sure. Um, so I got a job. I talked myself into a job. We went to uh, uh, Bill Meyer Stadium, which was the home of then the Double A Knoxville Sox, the Chicago White Sox affiliate. And there wasn't anybody there, maybe 500 people. And uh, the team was out of the race for the pennant, so not many folks there. And so we decided we were going to, we're college kids, you know, uh, cocky college kids. And so we're going to go down and sit in the, uh, the uh, box seats. Well, it cost 50 cents more to sit in the box seats than it did the general admission seats. So they threw us out and uh, I got en- enraged, of course. And so went into the office to, to voice my d- displeasure. And by the time I walked out of the office, I talked myself into a summer job with the Knoxville Sox, putting up the flags and taking guys to the doctor and uh, getting baseballs out for batting practice and taking tickets and cooking hot dogs and everything. But I loved it just being around the team. So I thought I was going to be a front office guy, going to be a general manager of a baseball team. And that was going to be my goal because I was a PR major. So when I was at the Sox, then I just started calling in these reports after the game, 30-second voicers. And at that time, all the radio stations had nighttime disc jockeys. And so they would take these reports and they would play them in the morning. And out of the blue, one of the stations that was doing the, the reports, WIVK, called me and offered me a part-time job. And that's how I got into broadcasting. So it, it was never my plan or never my goal when I got to Tennessee to go to college that I would be a, a broadcaster or do radio or any of that kind of stuff. I was going to be a PR guy. So... Uh, it just kind of tells you how your pathway is going to take different turns. And uh, I was just fortunate. And then uh, every time there was an open mic someplace and after that, I made sure I got behind it and tried to get as many reps as I could. So that's kind of how it evolved. 
Well, Bob, you said you never really uh, early on wanted to be on the air, but once you finally do get on the air, how hard is it to essentially learn on the fly? Because you didn't know growing up that specifically you wanted to be a broadcaster. No, but you know, once I decided I was going to do it, um, then I kind of, you know, you kind of go back to all the the guys you've listened to down through the years and you kind of know what you like and what you don't like. I mean, I, I love Jack Buck and I knew some of the stuff I liked about him. I love listening to Harry Carey, but I didn't like some of the stuff, how he broadcast games, but I, I loved his flair. Uh, and I loved, you know, listening to Bob Prince and all these different announcers that I grew up and all the different basketball announcers. So you, you kind of got a feel for once you started doing it, what you liked and what you disliked. And so I think all broadcasters, you listen to other guys and you steal as much stuff as you possibly can. And you throw out the stuff that doesn't work for you. And then you take what you like and you kind of make it your own and try and make it better. And, but again, you've got to be yourself. You can't try and be, I couldn't, I couldn't be Jack Buck and I couldn't be uh, Al Michaels or Marty Brenneman when I was listening to them doing the Reds. I couldn't be those guys, but I, I took what they did well and I tried to mold it a little bit to, to, to sort of fit my style. You mentioned you were a walk-on uh, on the football team at Tennessee, but on the broadcasting side of things, what were some things that you were doing in school to get you ready for when you wanted to get a job post-graduation? I didn't do anything in school to help me in broadcasting because all the classes I was taking in uh, uh, in school you know, were advertising and uh public relations and writing and all these different PR type classes. I didn't, I don't think I took a single broadcasting class at Tennessee, but the classroom I had was the fact that I would go to, to in the morning, I'd get up and do the morning sports on WIBK radio. That was my classroom in broadcasting. And uh, so that's where I learned to broadcast being around all those, those the broadcasters at WIBK. But then I, but again, when I was in school, uh, I still thought I was going to be, be a PR guy. And even though I had the Knoxville Sox job, when I was getting ready to graduate, I was going to Nashville to go to the baseball meetings, and I was going to get a job in minor league baseball somewhere, or even in you know, entry level in, in major league baseball. I was going to find a job and uh, start my baseball career. And as I was walking out the door, getting ready to go to Nashville, Bobby Denton was the general manager at WIBK Radio. And uh, I'm walking out the door. And he says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to Nashville this weekend for the, uh, the baseball meetings. I'm going to try and find a baseball. I got to get a job. I just graduated. I need a job. And he said, why don't you stay here and be the full-time sports director at WIBK? I said, are you going to pay me benefits? He said, yeah. Said, All right. That sounds good. So I never made it to Nashville. And then I started, you know, full-time in radio. And through that, I kind of worked my way onto the ball network, you know, uh, being a guy that ripped the wire and and took reports in from other radios, stations on other games. And so I was was a behind-the-scenes guy, but that's kind of how I met John Ward, and uh, who was, of course, the legendary broadcaster here at Tennessee. Well, they needed somebody to be the film editor on the Bill Battle show. And what back then all the highlights were shot on film. And when they would, they'd stop the camera, they'd put a little flash frame on the film. My job, I got paid 25 bucks a game and Ward said I was overpaid. Uh, was I would take a pair of scissors and I would cut the flash frame out of the game film. And then I would glue it back together. And then when the game was over, Ernie Robertson, who was the producer, and John Ward, they would come in and pick the highlights and put the, the, the game together through my film editing. But I wanted to be the best film editor in the SEC. So that's, that's how I met John Ward. And then uh, John needed a spotter the next year. And, that's, and then I moved over. So I was still editing the game film after the game, but I was spotting for John during the games. So that's kind of how I met Ward. And... Uh, just kind of moved, you know, moved up. I mean, I started at rock bottom in broadcasting, but I kind of, I kind of moved up a little bit. You mentioned spotting for John Ward. What can you tell us about his preparation when he got ready for a Tennessee football game? What was unique about John's booth? John was, uh, John went to law school, got his law degree, never practiced law, 
but he prepared uh, the games as if he was going to go, you know, battle a court, uh, go to the Supreme Court and try and win a case. And I mean, he had he had a basically a, a, a board in front of him, clipboard in front of him, and he'd have a stack of notes about that big. And periodically during the game, he'd flip through those notes. Now, I bet he didn't use 30 percent of them. But he still had those notes in front of him. So you and they were typewritten. So you knew all week all he was doing was making sure he had the information in case there was something came up during the broadcast. He would need that little nugget. But his preparation was unbelievable. He, he was the most prepared broadcaster I've ever been around. But that was his style. That's how he thought he needed to do things. And most of his pregame uh, and it was all scripted out because that's that's just the way he did it. And uh, I'm totally different from that. I can't script anything because I, I think you need to be more. I, I need to be more spontaneous. Uh, but there are other guys that script everything, and so it just depends on how you know if you're more comfortable uh, with that script in front of you, then do it. But if you're not, you know, you got to be again. You got to be yourself. And, of course, John, not only doing Tennessee football, Tennessee men's basketball, as the Lady Vols basketball program got started, he started doing some of the games, and then he passed that torch to you. Uh, what can you tell us about the early Lady Vol broadcast and then how you settle in uh, being the voice of the Lady Vols? Well, you know, it was funny because, uh, again, I was working at WIVK radio, and I was a sports director there. And WIVK at that time did not have the Vol Network, so they weren't carrying the Tennessee games. But Bobby Denton, who was the, the PA voice at Neyland Stadium for all those years, a legendary voice at Neyland Stadium, wanted to get the games on WIBK. And so Pat Summit was coming in, and the year before, she'd gone to the Final Four, and there was some buzz or some interest about the Lady Vols. And so um, Bobby Denton decided he was going to do the next year, was going to do the postseason games for the Lady Vols. And so uh, John Ward and A.W. Davis, they were the broadcast team. And I got to go along because I was the sports director at WIBK, and I got to do the pregame and the halftime and all the postgame stuff. So it wasn't a big budget operation. We uh, basically, our first, back then you had to win, it was in the AIEW, and you had to win your state tournament. So everybody in the state of Tennessee that was a member of the AIEW got into a state tournament somewhere whether it's Cookville or Knoxville or wherever it was, and you had to win that state tournament to advance to a satellite tournament for the IAW. So uh, our first games we did in that postseason in 78, we had to go to Martin, Tennessee, and we took a van. We went all the way to Martin. We, we won there. The next week we had to go to North Carolina, uh, UNC, and we took the van to North Carolina. Well, we, Lady Vols won both of those rounds, and now they're going, now they're in the national tournament. So then we go to uh, Cleveland, Mississippi, Delta State. We got to fly there. And uh, so we drove down, we flew to Memphis, drove, drove down to, uh, to Cleveland, Mississippi, to Delta State. We did the game. They won. And then we go to Fordham. So in that first year, I mean, heck, I've been to North Carolina. I've been to Delta State. I go to Fordham up in New York. I'm thinking this is a pretty good gig. So uh, we did the postseason games. And the next year, they decided they'll do all the games, or as many as they could, on WIVK. So John started out, again, doing the games that first year. Well, that uh, the first full-time year, that lasted about three games. And uh, I'll, uh, this is a funny story I'll never forget. Uh, we had to play in Cleveland, Mississippi again. We played at Delta State, one of the early games in the season. And so uh, I flew down with the team. And John was coming down the next day, the day of the game, because, you know, he's running his own advertising agency, so he's not going to travel with the team. He's going to fly down the day of the game and then fly back with the team. And so I'm in my hotel room that morning of the game, and I get this call, and it's from John. And I said, uh, I said, how you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm stuck in Atlanta. Bad weather. I'm stuck in Atlanta. I'm not going to be able to make it there tonight to do the game. So uh, you can do it by yourself, can't you? You 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 know you know what's going on. You know about the rosters. And I said, yeah, I know everything. Well, you just go ahead and do that. You got the equipment. I said, yeah, I've got all the equipment. You just do the game. And uh, I'm I'm going to turn around, and get back, go back to Knoxville. I said, that's fine with me, John. And so I'm 
fired up. I'm going to be get to do my first basketball game. I'm 20, I don't know, 22 years old or something like that. I'm thinking this is going to be great college basketball. And so I did the game and I was thought I did okay, got through it and got the score right and all those type of things. And so I go back to uh, the next day, uh, I take the radio gear back. And so I take it over to, to Ernie Robertson's office there at UT. And uh, I go, uh, Ernie, so I got to do the game last night. Of course, he's editing some film. He didn't even look up. He said, yeah, that's what I heard. I said, yeah, it was, I said, it was, it was really a lot of fun. I said, yeah, I bet it was. He said, well, John couldn't make it because of the bad weather. He said, what? I said, yeah, John called me and said he was stuck in Atlanta. He said, no, he wasn't. He was at that phone right over there. That's where he called you from. <laughs> so, so I figured out pretty quick that John wasn't going to do both the men and the women for very long. And so that's kind of how I got the lady ball job. And uh, so I started doing their games. And, uh, you know, I didn't treat it like women's basketball. Now, back then, it's a lot different than it is now in Tennessee. I mean, back then, a crowd of 100 people at Stokely Athletic Center was a good night. And uh, so you weren't doing it for the publicity and you weren't doing it for the money. I think I got paid 15 bucks a game or something like that. I did it for the reps. And I didn't view it as women's basketball. I viewed it as college basketball and SEC basketball. And, um, and I got a lot of reps. I got to do a lot of games. I went all over the country with them. And, you know, little did I know at that time that I was going to be working with one of the legendary coaches in college basketball and Pat Summit. I mean, back then she was Pat Head. And, um, and again, we're playing in Stokely. They just graduated from playing an alumni gym. And again, you know, one or 200 people a night was big time. I mean, that was big, big doing. So, uh, and and that's kind of where you've got to start. I mean, you take any opportunity you get and, um, and you run with it and do the best you can and you view it, view it as reps. So, but you know, when I was at WIBK, I also got a chance to do high school football. That was my first chance to do play by play, uh, on football. And, um, then I was doing lady balls and, uh, then, and then I started doing the, uh, by that time, they'd moved into Knoxville Blue Jays. So I was got a chance to do all the Knoxville Blue Jay home games on radio. I was working at WIBK. The games were on WHEL. So I was working at one station and broadcasting baseball on another, which was fine. And then the, I, I even did hockey during that time as well. I was doing the old Knoxville Cherokee. So, again, any mic that was open, I decided to uh, get behind it and see what I could do. In those early years, what are some things on air that you're trying to work on when you essentially just get in front of the microphone for the first time? What are things that you're looking to develop as a young broadcaster at that point? Score, time, who's got the ball, where is the ball, uh, score, time, reset, score, time, all those things that you kind of try and get ingrained with you. And you've got to, you know, you do back then, especially you, you have to, to, um, listen to yourself because you think you're good. I mean, you think that this, this is easy and you're going to be good. And then you start getting the criticism or somebody will start, well, you know, you didn't do that very well. Uh, I've told Roger this story before. Um, I was doing the lady balls and, uh, I was, they had a broadcast ramp at Stokely Athletics Center way above the floor. And you look kind of down on top of it. Great perch to watch and, and do a game. And so I'd done, I'd done some lady ball games and I, you know, I thought I was pretty good. I thought this was, this was going to work out really well. So I made a tape of one of my games. And, uh, so the lady ball position was down on one end of the, the ramp and John's Ward's position was on the other side. And so we did a double hitter. The lady balls played the first game and the second game was getting ready to come up. And so right before John went on the air, I said, John, would you would you mind listening to one of my tapes and kind of give me some critiques about things I could do better? Yeah, I'd be happy to, he said. And uh, so I didn't hear, get the tape or anything. And so we happened to have another doubleheader a couple of weeks later. And I went up to him again, you know, after our game was over, before he went on the air. And I said, John, did you have a chance to listen to my tape? And he said, yes, yes, I did. And he went to his briefcase and he opened it up. And I said, well, you know, did you get a chance to critique it? Yes, I did. I said, well, you know, anything I need to work on? And he said, try advertising and turned and walked away. So 
he uh, did not give me a lot of confidence that I was going to be a successful broadcaster, but he sent a very powerful message to me mm-hmm. with that just try advertising quip was, hey, I'm not as good as I think I am, and I need to get better, and I need to work at this. And you're not just a naturally born broadcaster. You might have some traits. You might have some good qualities, but you really got to work at it. It's a craft, and you've got to learn the craft, and you've got to get better at it, and you've got to you've got to really try and improve some of the things you're doing. You get into habits that you don't know you're doing, and that's why you need other people to listen to your tapes, and you need to listen to them as well. So you're not repeating phrases. Uh, my wife caught me on one. She said, um, this is back a long time ago, but she said I was using tonight in every sentence. Tonight, the Tennessee Volunteers, or tonight, 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 tonight. She said, cut it out. I'm sick of hearing tonight. I didn't know I was doing it. But that's just, that's a, now if your wife picks it out, you know it's bad. So, uh, but that's just, that's a little thing that you don't know you're doing it, but now you got to be conscious of it. And so you, you need the feedback. And as painful as it might be at times, it's going to make you better if you listen to what people say. And how much now, Bob, even after football games or basketball games, are you listening back to full games and, and doing self-critiques? I know me and Roger do it all the time. We all do it because nobody's a harder critic of yourself yeah. than yourself. So do you, do you still do that even all these years into it? I, I don't listen to full games, but I'll listen to like when I'm doing uh, my notes or something, get ready for the next game. Uh, you know, because now everything is archived, so you can go back and listen to it. But I'll, I'll listen to a quarter or I'll – I'll go back and, and uh, you know, what you the thing that you, you get in the habit of, you listen to uh, the highlights that they call and they play, and you're, you're always going, gosh, I wish I would have said that, or gosh, I could have done that better. And I think that's a motivating factor. Uh, I, I think that, that that's what gets you, you know, to keep going, that you know there's, there's that perfect call out there, and you're trying to get it. It's unattainable. But you're trying to get it. You're trying to get one of those Vince Scully, Jack Buck moments that's going to live forever. And everybody's going to just say what a great call it was. That's kind of what you want. And but you never and I'm sure if you talk to Vince Scully, Vince Scully said that the the Kirk Gibson home run call and Jack Buck had the same call. I mean, then they're totally different. And they're both probably saying, gosh, I wish I would have said that, or I wish I would have added this. So that's kind of what makes this this business so intriguing, because you're looking for perfection, and it's awfully hard to do. And it's there's never that perfect call, but that's what you're searching for. I think a lot of people, Bob, when they look at you, look at your relationship with John Ward and say, you know, Bob is really mentored by Ward as you were. But I think people may not know that you were mentored as well by the legendary Lindsey Nelson. What can you tell us about the friendship you had with him in his later years when he was living back in Knoxville and some lessons that he gave you? You know, I was fortunate. Uh, Lindsey, when he retired from the San Francisco Giants and, and did the Mets and all that kind of stuff, he came back here and he lived uh, up on Cherokee Bluff, right above the university. And uh, he would always say that he'd get up in the morning and he'd get his newspaper and a glass of orange juice and he'd walk out on the back porch and he would salute the general, General Neeland, and then he'd sit down and read his newspaper. And uh, he would come by our TV. Back, uh, eventually, I left WIBK and got a job. Uh, at Channel 10 in town as the, as the sports director. I was 26 years old. That's another thing. I I never never even dreamed that I'd ever be on TV and be a news anchor or sports anchor. But in 1980, Channel 10 called me out of the blue because their sports guy had left, and they wanted to know if I would audition for the job. I did, and they gave it to me. Couldn't believe they did it. I had no experience, but they thought I had some talent, and I was lucky that at the age of 26, I'm the sports director at the number one TV station here in Knoxville. So that was another big break in my career. But when Lindsay came back, Lindsay did a thing called Lindsay at Large. And they were three to five minute little blurbs, kind of like if you remember Andy Rooney on 60 Minutes, he'd get on there and do a little essay at the end of every 60 minute broadcast. And they were terrific. Well, this is kind of what, uh, what Lindsay was doing. And these weren't about sports. 
for example, he would say, you know, Knoxville, one of the main streets is Gay Street. And he'd do a three-minute vignette on why is it called Gay Street. And he'd talk about the pipe organ at the Tennessee Theater. And he'd talk about where General Nealon was buried. And he would talk, why is Fountain City called Fountain City? And he'd do these, and they were just unbelievably well done. And he'd take a camera guy out with him, and they would turn, and he never did a second take. It was always on the first take. And they'd start the camera, and they'd say, okay, Lindsay, go three minutes. Well, they didn't need a stopwatch. I mean, Lindsay would go three minutes, and he would wrap up his deal. They were the most unbelievable things I'd ever seen. And so I would come in to my office in the afternoon, and Lindsay Nelson is sitting in my office. Can you imagine? <laughs> He's waiting to go out and do this shoot. And then, hey, Bob, how you doing? You know, hello, Bob. I'm going, I'm living in some dream world. I'm sitting here shooting the breeze with Lindsay Nelson, of all people. And uh, so Lindsay, his wife then died. And so Lindsay would go to, um, there was a place called the Regus on 17th. Really nice restaurant right off campus. And so sometimes he'd be in there by himself eating dinner. And I would go drive by when I get off the six o'clock newscast and I'd drive by to see if he was in there. And many nights he was. And so that I barge in on him and ask if I could buy his dinner. And he always refused that. But he was always so gracious and said, Bob, sit down and let's talk. And we would we'd sit there for an hour or an hour and a half. And basically until I had to go back to work to get ready for the 11 o'clock newscast. But we talk on all kinds of different subjects hardly ever on sports or broadcasting. I mean, we weren't asking, you know, Hey, now the Mets doing this. Week. You know, he was past all of that. And, uh, but we talked about different things. And so he told me a couple of things that always stood with me. One, don't take a job for money. Uh, take a job for passion and not your passion, but the passion of the people that are listening. Because he said, if nobody's listening and nobody cares, that it's no fun to do the games. And he's right about that. He also said, don't take a job for money because when you get good enough, they throw money at you in this business. And there's a lot of truth to that. If you're good enough, you're gonna be able to find a way to make a living in this business. Uh, and he also said that, remember, you're not the story. The story is the story. Nobody is listening to the broadcast to hear you do the game. They're listening to hear how their team is doing, how their favorite player is doing. And if you can provide them any entertainment on top of that, that's a bonus. But they're not listening to the game because you're doing it. They're listening because their team is playing. And I always remember that. And uh, so he just was a great source of information. He'd show up at the, when I was doing the old Knoxville Blue Jay games, he, he'd show up at old Belmire Stadium every once in a while and I'd ask him every time he'd show up. I said, Lindsay, you want to come and do a couple of innings? And I was, I was doing it selfishly because I was hoping he would come up there and sit with me and I could listen to him do games. And he said, nah, I said, I've had my chance. This is your opportunity. Go up there and do the best you can. So I thought that was, uh, that was great. So yeah, I got to, I had a great relationship with Lindsay and I was um, really saddened when he passed away. I got to, you know, he wore those ugly sport coats. I mean, hideous sport coats. And, uh, but that was his trademark. And so I got to go up to his apartment there up on Cedar, uh, up on the hill, Cherokee Bluff, and uh, do a, just do a sit down with him about the, about the sport coats. And he had closets full of them. I mean, every closet in the house was full of these horse blankets that he called sport coats. I mean, they were just horrendous, some of them. Some of them were really nice. And, uh, so, uh, but everyone had a story. And so I asked him about this one. I said, uh, Lindsay, you don't really wear that, do you? He said, oh yeah, I wear that one all the time. I said, well, what's the story on that? He said, I was walking through the garment district in uh, New York City one time. And I walked by this uh, drapery store where they, you know, they had material for drapes. And there was this god awful green paisley looking material. And I walked into the proprietor of the store and I said, sir, would you be able to make that material into a sport coat? And the guy said, yes, but why? And because uh, it was so god awful. But they did. They made it into a sport coat. 
And he said he loved it because he could wear it to do the Mets game in the afternoon. And then he could put a bow tie on and go to the Met that night and go to the opera. So he could, he was very versatile sport. He had stories about everything, but you need to have mentors and guys that you could bounce stuff. And I, I could call him at any time and he would all, I mean, I think he really loved to have people talk to him. And uh, so we, I'd call him and uh, we'd talk and it it was just a great relationship. So I have John Ward and Lindsay and uh, then my dad knew Jack Buck. They went to Ohio state together. And so every time the Cardinals were close, I would get to go see Jack Buck. And uh, so I got to talk to him on several occasions and, uh, he gave me a bit of advice, which I thought was really good, too. Um, you know, I asked him, I said, uh, m- most players that I've heard like you, that you treat them fairly on the air, and they all seem to, you know, appreciate the job you do. He said, well, I, that happens because I tell the truth about it. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I had a dispute with Ozzie Smith. And I didn't think Ozzie Smith ran out a ball to shortstop one time. And I called him on it on the air. Well, Ozzie got me in the clubhouse the next day and was, you know, how dare you sad and hustle? He said, well, did you? And Ozzie said, well, I could have run harder. He said, well, that's all I was saying. I said, I'm not not trying to pick on you. I'm just trying to be truthful. So I, I think that's a good lesson, too. I think when you're broadcasting, you don't need to give opinions. You need to give the truth. and You need to be a reporter. And another thing he taught me or told me that I thought was really good. He said, uh, he said, you know, you got to keep away from criticizing players because the players are out there trying to win the game. They're not trying to lose the game. You need to, you need to be truthful about what they've done, but you can't pile on. And he said, um, how I do it. I treat every player on the field as if they're my own, my own son. And what would I want somebody saying about my son that has just messed up and maybe cost the team the game. He didn't try to. He didn't try and drop the pass or drop the fly ball or strike out with the bases loaded. He was just trying to win the game, but he but he didn't. So you need to report on what happened, but then don't pile on and make sure that you're treating that young man with or young lady with respect and just report the game. Don't don't opinionize or don't editorialize because that's not your job. And I thought that was really good advice. As we continue with kind of the arc of your career, uh, how did you transition into some television play-by-play work in the late 80s, early 90s, especially with Jefferson Pilot Sports? Well, you know, again, it's uh, I was fortunate. I mean, I keep saying that, but I was really kind of lucky. Uh, the uh, I'd done some pay-per-view games for UT uh, during the, the mid-80s into the late eighties and when they were doing the old sports view or whatever they called it, but it was the pay-per-view football games. Usually those were the non-conference games. And so I was lucky that I was able to do those games. And I think Mike Keith, who's now doing the Titans was a sideline reporter for some of them. Conrad Holloway and Ron McCartney and a bunch of the guys were my color guys, but Bobby Scott and some other people. So anyway, I, but I got to do, so I got experience calling TV games. Uh, and so in 1989, the SEC basketball tournament came to Knoxville. It was at Thompson Bowling Arena. And one of the Jefferson Pilot announcers got a better gig or was doing something for the networks. I don't remember what, what happened. But Jimmy Rayburn, who was the executive producer for, for Jefferson Pilot back then, called me and said, uh, this is a week before the tournament started. And he said, listen, one of our guys can't be there. We need somebody to do... Uh, in between game interviews, uh, interview coaches after the game, and basically be a sideline reporter and fill, you know, be a guy that can fill in case there's a delay or something like that. Are you interested? I said, well, yeah, sure I am. He said, well, let me give you the ground rules here. The only reason I'm calling you is because the games are in Knoxville. Your station is carrying the games, and I don't have to put you up in a hotel, pay your per diem, or pay an airplane ticket. That's the only reason I'm calling you. You still want to work? I said, yes, sir. Yes, I sure do. He said, let me I'm, let me put this into to perspective for you. If the games were on Channel 6, I would be calling the guy at Channel 6. Do you understand? I said, I got it. 
I got it. But I was just so thrilled to get the opportunity. I'm working with Tom Hammond and Larry Conley and all those guys. And, uh, but I want to do the best job I possible. I didn't even ask him how much it, it, it paid. I didn't care. I had a great opportunity. And so I was, so I was doing the, the, the games, Paul Kennedy, who later went on to Alabama to do play by play. And I, he's now down in Florida, still doing hockey and so much other stuff. Paul was the, uh, uh, the host. And he, he was a guy who threw to the different announcers and in between the games. And then I was the guy doing interviews in between games. So the next year, I, I apparently did a good enough job because the next year they asked me back. And uh, so I did the tournament the, the following year. Uh, then the, the next year after that, which would have been uh, 91, I guess, uh, then I got the host of the tournament. And then I get, got, I started, you know, in November, they already have those, they'd have not in November, but in February, they would have uh, those during ratings periods. So we would do two games or three games on a Saturday. And so then I moved in from being the, uh, they took me on full time to, to do the, the pregame show. And so then I would be able to do the pregame show and, uh, and then do play by play in those games in February. So I got a lot of experience and, uh, but again, if the games would have been on channel six, I never would have been in on Jefferson Pilot doing the sec game of the week. So it's funny how this business works sometimes. It's always time and place, isn't it? And yeah, how these opportunities come. But you know, Kyle, I think it's also it is it is time and place. But uh, I'll go back to Lindsey Nelson. Lindsey told me, "You're going to get one shot in this business. Will you be ready? Will you be ready when your opportunity comes? Can you break the door down?" And I wasn't sure exactly what he was what he was saying. But my big break was the Jefferson Pilot SEC basketball tournament. If I wasn't prepared, if I didn't know how to interview people, if I didn't know how to do live television, I never would have gotten the opportunity to do SEC football and basketball games on television. And that I never would have gotten a chance to do uh, University of Tennessee. Uh, so when that opportunity came, I was ready. Well, so many guys are just so confident that they're, you know, that they don't know why at the age of 23 or 24 that they're not just zooming right straight to ESPN. The problem is that you're not ready and you got to get ready and you do that by getting reps. And then suddenly you, you might get a call from ESPN and you better be ready because there are so many guys that get that call and think that ESPN is going to train them, but they're not. You got to be ready to go when you get the call, and and I, I think that's one thing. I do believe that you you do get a break in this business, and it's up to you to take advantage of that break. And it's fair to say you kick the door in once you got that opportunity, and now you fast forward to uh, becoming the voice of the Volunteers, a legendary collegiate brand, uh, replacing a legend in John Ward. What is that first season like going into that first season? Do you have a lot of nerves, anxiety going into a job like that, or are you prepared enough with everything that you've done to, to step into that situation and say, okay, I'm ready to go? Well, I, you know, I thought I was prepared because of the different, uh, I mean, I don't know what else I could have done to be more prepared. I mean, I'd worked beside John for 15 years, so I kind of knew, you know, the ins and outs of the ball network and the, and the broadcasting business. You know, I'd done, uh, national radio for I've done the NCAA tournament on, on Westwood one. So, you know, that, that's about as big as it gets. Uh, I've done games by myself. I, so I, you know, I've done hockey games. I mean, if you can do hockey games from the old ice palace in Toledo, Ohio, I think you can do pretty much anything. So I was, you know, I thought I was prepared for the job when, the, when it came, uh, it was interesting, you know, John announced his retirement uh, before the football season in 98. And so he was going to do 98, kind of do the, do the, the grand parade, uh, for a year through football and basketball season. Um, coach Dickey during that whole year, never talked to me at all about the job. I didn't know if I was a candidate, didn't had, didn't have any idea whether or not it was really a job I even wanted. Uh, and because I had so many people in the business Tell me, don't take it. You don't want to be the guy that replaces the legend. You want to be the next guy. Well, my philosophy on that was, 
this job only comes open about every 20 or 30 years, there might not be a next time that this is a job I really like. And uh, so anyway, when the, uh, but I was just going about my business. I was doing the Jefferson pilot. I was doing channel 10. I was just, you know, going day by day. And if something happened, it, it would. And uh, the day after John's last basketball game, he did, a, did an NCAA tournament game on Saturday and Doug Dickey called me on Monday. And that's when we started the negotiations. So, uh, but I had more people, again, in the business tell me not to take it than to take it. But I had enough confidence in myself that I, and again, I don't think I could, be, could have been any more prepared to take over such a big job as this. I knew there was going to be scrutiny. I knew that there were going to be people that, people that just didn't like me because I wasn't John and I didn't call games the way John did. And this is how we're used to hearing the games of Tennessee. And I know that, you know, I talked to Paul Kennedy about it because he replaced John Fortney at Alabama. And, you know, people had a certain way that they wanted to, to listen to the games. I talked to Tom Leach up in Kentucky. I mean, he, of course, there was Ralph Hacker in between um, um, Tom and Kaywood, Ledford. But still, Tom, there was still people still, you know, it's Kaywood's court, for God's sake, at Rupp Arena. So they haven't forgotten about Kaywood Ledford in Lexington. But, you know, you just have to be yourself and you have to have confidence in yourself that you can do the job. And but you also have enough confidence that if it doesn't work out, you do something else. You get another job. And I did have that confidence. So uh, it, it was an honor that I got the call from Coach Dickey. It was an honor that they asked me to, to replace John. Uh, it's my school. I went here. Makes it different. That makes it a lot more uh, special. Uh, you know, I, pl I did play football here briefly, so I got to play against Notre Dame and Alabama in freshman games. So I knew something about the mystique of the orange shirt, and that's what made it special and just something I couldn't I couldn't turn down. And in my and of course my family had a, a part to play in it too. Uh, you know, my wife said, "Aren't you tired of trying to jump on a plane Saturday after after a game in Starkville and trying to get home? Wouldn't you much rather be tailgating with your kids in the parking lot at Neyland Stadium on a Saturday? I mean, your kids are in high school. They're going to be gone pretty soon. Don't Wouldn't you rather spend time with them instead of being in an airport every Saturday trying to get home from a football, football or basketball game? That made a lot of sense, too. So I, I was just very fortunate that I got this opportunity. And uh, uh, But, you know, you, again, in this business – you need to have tough skin because it doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, I, I don't care what, who you are in this broadcasting business, you're going to get criticized. And there are going to be some people that don't like you. And there are probably going to be other people that heap too much praise on you. And you've got to kind of find that middle ground. And again, just do the games the way you think they ought to be done. In terms of, of being the voice of a, of a big program like Tennessee, how do you go about connecting to the fan base, whether you're emceeing some social event for the Athletics uh, Association and, and just talking to fans and, and trying to show them your personality? What is that like being the voice of a school and trying to connect to a fan base, again, that was so attached for so many years to, to one broadcaster and John Ward? Mm -hmm. Well, you've got to get out. You've got to be in the community. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, I've been active in the YMCA. and uh, I was the United Way chairman one year. Uh, been on the board of the Knoxville Sports Hall of Fame. I try and get out. We, You know, we used to do the Big Orange Caravan. We'd go all over the state. And we'd, we'd go to 16 different cities and play golf and have a big barbecue. So I got to make a lot of connections. And we don't, because of recruiting schedules now, we I don't know if any schools ever do those type things anymore, but uh, we get in an RV and travel from one end of the state to the other and spend pretty much the whole month of May on the road. So you got to meet a lot of fans, but, but I think you're right. You need to, you need to get out. You need to be visible. Uh, you need to let people show that you're just a, a normal guy. Uh, it's, it's amazing. The response you get, we do our pregame show outside Neyland stadium, outside gate 21. And, there's several thousand fans that uh, are making their way past our broadcast position and there are hundreds that'll sit up there on the hillside and, and watch us. And so you make that connection with the fans there. And again, I've never lost the, the concept that they are not listening to the ball network for Bob Kessling and Tim Priest or Burt Bertelkamp. 
they're listening because they love their football and basketball teams and they want to hear what they're doing. Your job is to be the reporter and your job is to provide as much entertainment while you do that as possible. So again, I think all of us that have a job like this, there are 14 of us in the SEC. I think we're all very fortunate to have these positions and all know how special they are. Let's talk preparation for a little bit, Bob. Uh, for a typical Tennessee football game, what does your week look like in terms of all the work you're doing? And then, of course, that's preparing the spotting board. What is most important for you to have in your spotting board that you're, so you're good to go on Saturday? Uh, well, I start on Sunday, and I start Sunday night. You know, I had a little downtime where, you know, I sleep through the NFL games. I try and stay awake for them, but I usually sleep through the uh, NFL games and wake up just in time for 60 minutes. And, uh, but then I'll, uh, then I'll go to the, the, to the computer and I'll see how the, the team that Tennessee's playing the next week, see how they did go through the articles, uh, listen to the post-game press conferences of the coaches and the players kind of get a feel, uh, for their injuries and those type things. And then Monday, uh, you go in and you start putting together your, uh, you got your depth charts by then you start to put together your spot charts. I do mine on a legal folder. And so I, you know, have opened it up and I've got, you know, offense, defense on one side, flip it over and offense, defense on the other side uh, for the teams. And, uh, but then I had that little folder so I can keep all my notes. Uh, I want them all in one spot. So I know exactly where everything is during the week. So I spend Monday morning putting together my spot chart, Coach Pruitt and the players. We have a press conference on Monday uh, around noon. So that'll take me until about two o'clock come back, try and finish my spot chart. We've got a call-in show that Monday night. Tuesday, spend most of the day on the visiting team, uh, going over their press conferences, going over their notes. Uh, you know, the good thing about the internet now is that there's lots of information. The bad news is there's lots of information you got to pile through, but you got to go through it and find out the, the notes and those things about the, the broadcast. Wednesday, I kind of try and tie everything together, finish up my spot charts, uh, go over last minute uh, newspaper uh, articles. Uh, then uh, Wednesday afternoon, Tim Priest and I go and watch film on the team we're getting ready to play. And then we visit with the coordinators on Wednesday night. Uh, Thursday, uh, then I'll try and spend some time with Coach Pruitt. And Wednesday night, also we have ball call. So I'll get to spend some time with Coach Pruitt on Wednesday night. Uh, but I guess what I'm saying is every day, you have to have a routine and you got to have a checklist. And I kind of learned this from John Ward. You can't do, well, I'll do that. Well, I'll do that. No, you got to do it on Monday. Got to get everything done on Monday. Then you got your next Tuesday. You got to get everything done on Tuesday. And if it means going to your talk show and coming back to the office afterwards, you got to get it done. Cause if you let things pile up and by the time you get, I mean, Friday is the day that you tie up all the loose ends and you kind of relax a little bit. But Friday is the day that you kind of, it's like the day before the final exam. You just kind of go over everything. And, but Friday needs to be the day you kind of relax a little bit. And then Saturday morning, you get up, go to the stadium, review your notes, go down and visit with the TV announcers and the visiting radio guys and the SIDs. I try and get there about three hours before the game. And it's amazing to me how fast that time goes. Because, you know, this conversation is 15 minutes and this one's 15 and that one's 15. And suddenly, next thing you know, you got to go downstairs to get Coach Pruitt to do his pregame. And then you got to go out and do your call-in show. And then next thing you know, you're kicking it off. So the, uh, the pregame, the day of the game, it's just really hectic and goes fast. And that's why you can't rely on cramming Saturday morning. You got to have it done by Friday night. Along with all the fundamentals of play-by-play, -play, like time and score, what's most important to you as you're calling a football? And then uh, if you could discuss basketball as well, what are the main things you want to convey just beyond the fundamentals? Well, where the ball is on the field, I think, is very important. Direction is important. I think, you know, one thing that I still struggle with, and I, I think every, if you talk to every broadcaster, they'll always tell you there's something that they wish they were just a lot better doing. One of my biggest problems is when the ball is intercepted, spotting it where it was intercepted. You know, because your natural tendency is there's the drop back to pass. The ball's intercepted, and so he's got into the midfield. He's got to... Well, you never told me where he intercepted the ball. 
So I don't know exactly how far he ran it back or did he catch it in the middle of the field? Catch. So I really have to work hard when the ball is intercepted. He caught the ball in the middle of the field at the 40-yard line and then go into the call. So they're just little things. I think it's important uh, that you give the formation or if they're if you have a key receiver, a big-time receiver, like this past year, we had um, Juwan Jennings and we had Marquez Callaway. Well, I thought it was important for people to know where Callaway and, and uh, Juwan Jennings were on the field because if Jennings is in the slot to the right, there's a pretty good chance they're going to throw a slant pass to Jennings. So I wanted to paint kind of that picture a little bit. I think you need to paint uh, – you know, and of course now everybody's in the shotgun, but if they get under center, well, that's news. So you need to talk about, are they under center? Are they still on the shotgun? Uh, and I think in basketball also, I think it's very important for direction. I don't want to, I don't really care that this guy made a pass to this guy. I want to know he made a pass to this guy who's standing where on the floor, on the wing. Is he down low on the block? I mean, if I'm listening to the game, I can visualize a guy catching the ball on the left block. I know where that is, and I know he's got his back to the basket, and now he spins in the lane with the right hand, and he hooks it up and in. I mean, I can kind of visualize that. But if you just say, Johnson's got the ball, throws it to Smith, Smith throws up a hook. I don't know whether he's throwing the ball up from the corner or whether he's at the top of the key or where he is. So I think in basketball it's very important direction and location of the ball on the floor when the guy takes a shot is it a long jump shot you know if you just say smith passes the ball to jones jones puts up a shot good well where was he you know was he on the was he in the lane was he in the corner was he in the, you know so you need to kind of there's a flow to basketball and i think it's and we all need to be i know you, know, you guys probably tell yourselves so you need to be better at those type things but i think it's Flow and direction, especially on radio, is very important in where the ball is. And flow brings me to my question. When you have such a fast-paced game like basketball and, and how fast-paced football is now with no huddle offenses, what's the key to you to, to keeping good diction to words, to having a good pace? I think a lot of young broadcasters, and I think I was guilty of this you know, fairly recently, a couple of years ago, of just trying to go a million miles a minute. For you, how do you slow yourself down, especially in Division One men's basketball? I mean, that's, that's back and forth. That's up and down. And football, no huddle now. It's like that, too. How do you slow yourself down on the air? Any keys no. to that? Well, you know, what's the old John Wooden uh, saying, you know, uh, hustle, don't hurry. You know, kind of try and keep up with the pace of the game. But don't get like this. You know, don't get all tense. Um, just, I, 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 just call what you see. I mean, there's a flow to the game, um, and you, you're not going to – again, every one of your calls is not going to be perfect. It's not. You're going to fumble some. You're going to get talking too fast. But you need to try and slow down the best you can. And um, I, I just think that you, it's, you're, you're better off being accurate than trying to be great. I think if you go into the game – you know, I think so many young, young broadcasters think they have to have all these catchphrases and have to, you know, that the that they're going to move up if they're so colorful. And the bottom line is, I think that you're going to move up if you're a good reporter of the game and that you get everything right. Now, if you can add a little basketball, you know, slam or whatever you want to say, that's fine. But don't don't wear me out with catchphrases. Wear me out with what the score is what the time is, you know, and if you've got a partner, I think it's important to, this is, this is kind of how I, my philosophy has always been. Uh, I'm going to call the game. I'm going to see where, tell you where the ball is, who's taking the shot from the top of the key and whether the shot is good or bad. Let's say they make the shot from the top of the key and it's a three. I'm going to shut up. And that gives Bert Bertelkamp 10, seconds maybe to tell me what happened on the play now i don't need him to tell me that uh you know suddenly jordan bowden just made a three point i just told you that tell me why bowden was open that's what you've got to emphasize to your color guy don't tell me who hit the shot i just told everybody who hit the shot tell me why he was open 
and what made that shot special. Do that, and then by the time he gets done with his whatever he's saying, he has to wrap that up with about 10 seconds because by the when the ball gets back to midcourt, he's got to give it back to me so I can reset the next play. Now, in basketball, you know, sometimes it goes pretty fast, but the general principle is you tell your color guy, and if he doesn't do it, cut his mic off. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you hit the, sh- you, you call the shot, you shut up. Now, if he doesn't say anything, he might not say anything. Then you let the crowd, you know, fill in a little bit, and then you jump back in it. He might not say anything. And I don't, you know, I tell Bert, you don't have to say anything. Uh, your color guy, your analyst, he shouldn't be compelled to think that he has to say something after every shot. He doesn't. Uh, if it's just a you know basic layup, if it was you know nothing very spectacular, he doesn't need to say anything. But if he does, he needs to get the ball back to you by the time you get to midcourt. And it's interesting you bring up uh, analysts because I want to ask this question on radio. In basketball, there's probably not enough time to ask direct questions, especially when the ball's in play of your analyst. But football, how much direct questions, specific questions are you asking your analyst or do you just trust him to kind of know his spot in the broadcast and to know when to step in with commentary? You don't necessarily have to ask specific questions. You know, I think it, it goes to the uh, experience or inexperience of the person you're working with. When I was doing Jefferson Pilot games on television, I would always get the rookie analysts. And uh, so, you know, Tim Brando would always have uh, – you know, the Dave Rowe or um, whoever we were, Tim Foley or whoever. And then I would, I would get the guy that maybe is doing his first game and is nervous and those type of things with those guys. You got to make sure that you keep them involved in the broadcast. You got to make sure that you keep them engaged. So sometimes you got to ask them a question and you know, kind of bring them in a little bit. Uh, I'm fortunate with, with Tim, you know, priest again, we've been together so long. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, let's say there's handoff goes to the tailback. Ty Chandler takes it around the right end. He gets tackled for a three yard gain and Tennessee will have it second down and seven. And I shut up. And then Tim might say, well, that play would have gone for a lot more if the H back would have made his block or what a great play by the linebacker. And he knows that by the time Tennessee gets the ball back to the line of scrimmage and they get in formation, he needs to shut up and give it back to me so I can reset the play. So I think that uh, there's just a rhythm you have. If, you're, if your analyst is not um, prepared, and there's a lot of times, I'm fortunate because Tim and Bert both show up with notes. They're both into it, and they both are, do a really good job of being involved in the game. And, and again, Tim and I spend Wednesday putting together our game plan. There are a lot of analysts and play-by-play guys I know that don't get together during the week and don't watch film and don't talk to the coaches. So I understand that. So I'm lucky because my guys are so prepared. I don't have to worry about that. But uh, my philosophy is you're the reporter. The analyst is the star. It's your job to set up the analyst to make sure that they really shine. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. John Madden was okay with Dick Stockton. He was okay with Vince Kelly. He flourished with Pat Summerall. Why? Summerall set him up all the time. Summerall understood that Madden was the star. And Summerall just kept putting him in a position to be the star. And their broadcast, they were great. Uh, Right now, uh, Jim Nance is doing an unbelievable job setting up Tony Romo. I mean, Romo's making, what, $16 million a year now? He ought to give half of that to Jim Nance. Because Nance just does such a great job setting him up. Joe Buck does a great job with Troy Aikman. So all these young analysts that Al Michaels sets up Chris Collinsworth. I mean, Collinsworth's won, what, 10 Emmys? He ought to give all of them back to Al Michaels because Al sets him up constantly. But they work together as a team. And so, again, I think the play-by-play guy – his job is to make sure his analyst is the star of the broadcast. And that's what I try and do with my guys. 
Getting close to the end of the hour, so only a couple left for you, Bob. But I uh, want to go back to what we talked before about Lindsey Nelson saying you're going to get your one big break. And there was a point in your career when you had been doing a lot of good things, voice of the Lady Vols, doing a lot of Jefferson Pilot Sports, and you were pretty anxious for what that next big break would be. And I know you had a conversation with Pat Summit about when your time is going to come for that big break. Can you tell us what she said and some advice for people that maybe feel like they're kind of in the middle of their careers, kind of waiting yeah. for the next uh, shoot of fall? Yeah, that's, uh, that, I'm glad you brought that up, Roger. Uh, you know, Pat, everybody says that Pat was this overnight success and such a great, well, she went to the final four, seven times before she won her first championship. I mean, she was the Buffalo Bills of college basketball. They, well, you know, Pat's a good coach, but she can't win the big one. Well, she finally won that first one. And in 1987, finally got over the hump, won the championship. And I called her. And I said, can I take you out to lunch? Now I've been doing her games. And uh, basically, I just asked her, I said, what kept you going? Most people thought after the 84 Olympics, you need to win the gold medal. What is bigger than winning the gold medal uh, for your country? And she said, well, I, you know, we were close at Tennessee. And I thought we had a chance to win a championship. And I knew it was up to me to get our team better. So I went to Phil Jackson. I learned the triangle offense because we had Shemekwa Holesclaw. And I looked at who we were recruiting, and I looked at uh, how we were conditioning, and I was looking at nutrition of our players, and were our practices too hard or not hard enough? Were they too long or not long enough? I broke down every single thing we were doing, recruiting and everything, and it paid off with the championship. I said, wow. I said, well, the reason I brought, I, I got, this is where I am. I kind of need motivation a little bit from you, if you could help me. You know, I've been, I've got a great job. I'm working at Channel 10 here in town, number one TV station in the state of Tennessee. Um, we're doing great. I'm doing uh, Lady Vol basketball on radio. I'm doing Vol Network stuff. I'm really, you know, everything. It's really terrific. But am I going to be doing this for the next 20 years? You know, what's my next step? Where am I going next? And I kind of feel like I'm kind of stuck in a rut here a little bit. And I just needed, you know, I need a little shove, a little kick in the pants to, and I guess what I was trying to tell her was, you know, I can't believe that ESPN and CBS have not seen my greatness while they're not beating down my door. And I didn't ask her to call anybody. And I didn't ask her to, to do me any favors. I just needed to know how do I kind of get out of it. And it was a good rut to be in, but I knew that for me to, stay satisfied in this profession, I was going to have to take some, you know, bigger steps and get on with my career a little bit. So I laid that all on the table for her. And all of a sudden, uh, she looks across the table and gives me the stare, which you don't want to get the stare from Pat's on. And she goes, Bob, I don't know anything about broadcasting. I don't know anything about the politics of it. I don't know who they hire and who they fire and why they do what they do. My guess is the reason that you're not getting any phone calls and you're not moving on with your career is you're not good enough. I wouldn't expect any. It's like I got hit in the head with a hammer. That's not what I was expecting to hear from. She goes, now, I, I listen to your broadcast because they put your broadcast over the top of our game film. I think you do a great job. But there's somebody out there that doesn't think you're doing very good or your phone would be ringing. You get another chance. So what you need to do, go back tonight, look at your newscast on Channel 10, figure out how you can make it better. Your next basketball game, baseball game, make sure you're doing it better. You need to get better. And that's how I looked at my career. I needed to get better. And uh, I, I think there's a good lesson in that. And, you know, it was funny because the next year, the Jefferson Pilot calls me and I start doing SEC basketball. So her little encouragement, her little hit in the head with a hammer, really helped me. I, I think a lot of times young broadcasters, when they get rejected, and Lord knows we all get rejected, that you want to get mad at the person that doesn't hire you. What you need is to figure out why you didn't get the job. Why did they hire that guy and they didn't hire me? Why didn't I get the job? Instead of moping around and saying, oh, well, you got to go after the next challenge. So once you figure out why you didn't get the job, you're going to get better, and then you'll probably get the next job. 
And we'll get you out of here on this. Of course, we talked about your relationship with John Ward being part of the John Ward broadcasting tree that has a lot of branches to it. A lot of guys have been successful uh, in your time at Channel 10, Jefferson Pilot, and then uh, your years with the Vol Network being the voice of the Vols. You've developed your own broadcasting tree over the years. And I know mentoring young broadcasters is something that's been very important to you. And uh, whether it's Big Orange Broadcasting Camp or some of the uh, young broadcasters you've gotten to know, just how proud of you are of all the people you've helped get started in this business now the things are starting to do well it, it is a thrill and uh you know i think john ward took a lot of pride in the fact that you know i got the chance to replace him and mike keith another guy that came up under him is now the voice of the tennessee titans for over 20 years i, I think he took a lot of pride in the fact that two of his guys got two of the biggest broadcasting jobs in tennessee and i take a lot of pride in in the people that are keep moving up guys like you Roger and some other guys that maybe have had some I've had a little part in their career and Courtney Lyle is another one who's just doing great things at ESPN and uh, her dad gave me my first job at WIBK he was the sports director Paul Lyle was the sports director at WIBK when I got hired so I go back to Courtney when she was a little squirt and um, to watch her move up and uh, it was great I don't think Courtney will be uh embarrassed by me telling the story, but, you know, Courtney came up, worked for us at UT, and then she went on down to Macon and took a job as a sports reporter at Macon and then came back to Channel 10 here in town and was a reporter for Channel 10. And then we started doing these SEC Plus games, and we're doing Lady Ball games, and I thought it would be great to have a female voice doing Lady Ball basketball on television. And so Courtney was the obvious choice to get the first crack at it. So I call her up and I said, Courtney, you need to come over here. Uh, we're going to do these SEC Plus games and you you need to do the play-by-play. Oh, oh no, I, w- I want to be a sideline reporter. I said, no, you don't. You want to be a play-by-play. So get over here. So we went to uh, one of the rooms in the communications building. We put tapes in and we kind of did crash course for a couple of weeks. And she was a great student. I mean, took down notes and how can I do this better and all this kind of stuff. So we did that for a couple of weeks and I said, well, how do you feel? She said, well, I feel pretty good. I said, well, good. You got the game Sunday. What? I can't. You'll be great. And so she did the game and shortly after that ESPN called her and and off she goes. So uh, again, she was ready for her break. She had worked so hard through high school, through college, through Macon, through Tennessee, they're doing the SEC Plus games. She got her one break at ASPN, and she takes off. And so that's what you need to do is prepare guys to follow you in your footsteps and make sure they're prepared because they're all going to get a break. They're all going to get a chance, but they got to be ready, and that's what you got to teach them. Well, you've been a great teacher, and you gave me my start in this business before I even took a class at Tennessee. Helped get me involved right from the start and uh, have meant so much to me. And then there's another extension. Kyle worked for me in Jacksonville, of course, uh, for a summer. So Kyle's part of your broadcasting tree as well. So we really appreciate all the insights you've given us over this hour plus. It's been a lot of fun, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Roger, what's my parting gift? Any, do I get anything at all for this? We may you get you a hat you. down the line. I, I think a broadcaster hour hat may be coming your way uh, for your next He's in the middle camp a used jumbo shrimp t-shirt. <laughs> He's very appreciative. <laughs> he is very appreciative. He wears it out more than grass. Uh, that's right. Hey, guys, listen, thanks. Best luck to you guys. And uh, Kyle and Roger, I know that uh, you got that fire in your belly to, to be good at this business. And, and uh, I think you can tell everybody that's listening, it's a hard business but it pays off with such great rewards you get to travel all over you get to meet great people and uh, and again when you get good enough they throw money at you like lindsey nelson said so the key is just to keep getting better every single day but i appreciate you guys time thanks bob all right thanks to bob kessling for joining us for broadcaster hour back next week friday at noon thanks for watching everyone